Our scripture this morning is from Luke chapters 22 and 23. The chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders had come for Jesus. Then, seizing him, they led him away. The whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. I have a favorite quote about sharing our faith, about evangelism. I heard it first when I was in college. Uh, most people attribute it to a Sri Lankan pastor named uh, D.T. Niles. I'm not sure who actually said it first, um, but I like the quote anyway. It says, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar well, where to find bread. This idea that uh, the truth of the kingdom is something that's just so valuable. It, it's all of us are on an equal playing field. It's, it's those of us who have discovered something good that we are so in need of that we just have to share it with others. In our adult Bible study this morning, we were, were in the beginning of the Gospel of John, and we saw how uh, some of the early disciples, that Andrew just goes to sell his, his brother Peter, uh, Simon at the time, we think we found the Messiah. There's this expectation, and they, he has found what they've been looking for. He goes to tell the people that he cares about the most. In our text this morning, we encounter another such beggar whose humility and faith is an example for us, and a pointer for, for all of the world, for the real source of life, for the one who's worthy, we just sang about. This is our third week reflecting on the last seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. The last seven recorded, at least. Today's saying is rather unique among the seven because it's the only statement that Jesus makes in response to someone else talking to him first. That's significant. Everyone else is either mocking him or watching in silent despair and horror. But this man speaks to him with empathy. He's going through the exact same thing that Jesus is with honor and enough hope to actually ask something of Jesus while Jesus is on the cross. Who is this man? I want to talk about that for just a moment. Luke describes him, the two crucified men beside Jesus, simply as criminals. Matthew and Mark identify them, uh, calling them thieves. The Greek word is lestoi, uh, also can be translated bandits or rebels. So not just guilty of like burglary or theft, but uh, implying some violence or danger behind that. Uh, we just 
watched the video earlier for the children's message about uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's the same word used to talk about the bandits on the road who attack the man uh, who the Samaritan later helps. Uh, Just another, like, it was interesting to me to do some word study on that as well. Uh, This is also the same word whenever Jesus talks about how he is the good shepherd and all else who come in uh, are thieves and robbers. That same word, listoi. Uh, it's also the same word um, that he used when he, he talks about uh, when he's flipping over the tables in the temple. Uh, and he says, you've made this into a den of robbers, Lestoy. It's also the same word whenever they come to find him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, why have you come at me with swords and with clubs as if I were a bandit or, 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 or rebel in some way? Implying some, uh, some sort of danger that they feel the need to overcome. And it is also the term used in John's gospel to describe Barabbas, the one who, the violent rebel that the crowds have asked Pilate to release on Passover, as was his custom, instead of Jesus, while they demand that Jesus be crucified in his place. So I say all that to say, I don't think it's a far leap to suggest that these two criminals may have been co-conspirators with Barabbas. Maybe they all got arrested at the same time for the the same thing. And uh, Barabbas was meant to also be crucified among the three. And instead, he got to go free. These two men, though, they uh, are resigned to their fate. And they're crucified alongside of Jesus. One of these criminals endures the uh, events with little remorse. Apparently turning the pain outward by joining all of the other mockery that is leveled against Jesus. But the other one the one who speaks the day that Jesus responds to, he, he apparently senses the significance of the moment, and he interjects. He stops the other one from mocking, and he affirms that both he and the other have received their due, but this Jesus is innocent. And he then turns to Jesus with a simple request, remember me, remember me. And Jesus responds, Truly, I'm telling you, today you will be with me in paradise. I think this is simultaneously a comforting word, but also brings up a lot of questions for us as readers, right? Uh, What or where exactly is paradise? What does it mean for us when we think about life after death? Why does this guy, of all people, make the cut? And what does this mean for us? That's going to be kind of what I will help us reflect on this morning. First, let's talk about that word paradise. Uh, My wife has told me again and again over the years that I should uh, preach on uh, that concept of what happens to us in our our life after death because there are a lot of wrong ideas ideas out there about the topic. Um, For instance, the Bible nowhere says that we become angels at death uh, or that God is somehow in need of us at a specific time as opposed to any other particular time. So you hear bandied about at funerals all the time, God just needed another angel, right? So that's why this has happened. Uh, Now, I will say that I don't particularly pick funeral as a time to debate theology with people. So if someone uh, is saying something that I'm like, I'm not quite sure that's right, I'm not going to pick that moment to to talk about that. And yet also, uh, I don't tend to preach on this subject a ton because... Uh, There just aren't, honestly, that many places in the Bible that directly talk about this topic and this question. But this passage does touch on it, at least. And so my wife will be happy today. I'm going to talk about it. 
So this man and Jesus, they are both on the brink of death, and Jesus tells him that they will be in paradise. This man and Jesus together. This word paradise is a compound word uh, in Greek originating from a Persian word, uh, partis. I'm not an expert in Persian, but I read this in a commentary somewhere, um, which means an enclosed garden or an orchard. For first century Jews, the term paradise formed this picture of a, a safe pleasant place, they would have immediately called to mind the Garden of Eden. In fact, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew uh, of Genesis, that is the word they use, paradise, or paradisos, for the Hebrew uh, for Garden of Eden. So it conjures up this idea. It's a pleasant place where the souls of the just would find rest after death. The New Testament writers also use this term later as a synonym for the dwelling place of God. They might also talk about heaven. There's a parable where, where Jesus um, talks about Abraham's bosom, right? If you think about uh, the parable of Lazarus and the, the rich man. The idea being that while the body dies, the soul somehow continues on in some kind of immaterial state. Now, there's a few things that we don't know and things that we do know. We, we don't know uh, to what degree does the soul have a form? How does the soul interact with its environment? To what degree does the soul experience the passing of time? Where exactly is paradise, if it's a physical location, or heaven, or Abraham's bosom, as Jesus refers to it in the parable? And are these images that we see in Scripture, are, and in the New Testament, are they to be taken literally? Or are these images attempting to describe something that's just beyond our senses and understanding, to try to give us some handholds for this idea? In one sense, I think these questions are entertaining to consider. They're, they're helpful for us, honestly, also, when we are in the midst of grief, we're usually looking for certain answers about things, right? And so it's easy for us to grab onto things that seem certain. But honestly, we don't know. There are a few things, though, that we do know uh, that Scripture does tell us. And I think those are more helpful for us to focus upon. In particular, in this this saying that Jesus gave, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The most important clause in that is, you will be with me. We know that in some way that those with active faith in Jesus will be with Jesus even in death. Likewise, those who reject Jesus will continue to not be with him in death in some way. Now, whether there will be a second chance for those uh, who were never adequately told or who rejected Jesus because of some wound or hurt, we just don't know. There's not enough data in Scripture to tell us that. Whether either the faithful or the wicked uh, will experience this state uh, in some sort of soul sleep of just like this instantaneous, it was like a dream and then they wake up, uh, or a conscious experience of either bliss or tor torment, I just don't think that we can say that for sure, given the biblical data. But, and this is important, we do also know that whatever the experience is that we have upon death, there is still more to the story. That death is not the end, not just in the sense that our souls continue in an immaterial way after the death of our bodies, but in the sense that the salvation story is not yet over. There's a scene in Revelation 6 that I think is really interesting. I don't think I have a slide for this, but I'm going to turn open to it. If you open up to Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, 
This is talking about the seals of judgment being broken um, uh, in the, the, the last times. And it says, when he broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered for the word of God and for the testimony that they had given. These are the martyrs. They cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number would be complete, both of their fellow servants uh, and their, of their brothers and sisters who were soon to be killed as they themselves had been killed. Now this is significant because it shows us that even in heaven, that there is this longing for what is coming next. The story isn't over. Jesus will yet return. Death is to be put to death. All sin and brokenness will be no more. There will be a judgment and a new creation, a wedding of heaven and earth. This is kind of getting our, ahead of ourselves, but it's important to put in the context what Jesus is saying even here. It frames the good news of Jesus' statement that Jesus will indeed enter his kingdom. He will enter his kingdom, and in the process, he will not only remember the humble souls like this man's, but be present with them in peace. So we may not know, how, uh, know much about the current experience of those who have passed on, and we also may know very little about the state of their relationship to Jesus in their last moments. This man on the cross, he didn't seem to have much in the way of impressive faithfulness prior to this moment. Right? And yet his heart was softened. But we, what we do know is that Jesus longs for our reconciliation and that there is assurance that those who put their trust in him will find comfort and peace with him. Maybe brings up another question, though. If, if this guy can beat the buzzer, right, then why bother with faithfulness to begin with? If we can just say the right thing at the very end, and, and we'll be okay, then why bother with a life of faithfulness prior to that? This is a question that people often get hung up on um, when we're uncertain about the spiritual lives of the loved ones who have passed. What, what happens with this thief is encouraging, right? I have people that I love who have died, and most of what I've observed in their lives tells me that they didn't have much of a care for God at all during their lifetime, but it's a comfort to me to know that I'm not the one making that decision. I'm not the one making the call about their eternal destiny. And there's so much of someone's interior life, especially in those last moments, that we are unaware of. And so I don't, I don't have to worry about that. But on the flip side, it can also make us wonder, well, why should we even bother with faithfulness to begin with? If we can just wait till the end and say, just in case, I'm sorry, I believe in you, then what's the point? To take that even deeper, doesn't it feel a little bit outrageous to think that someone could commit atrocities with no judgment whatsoever just because they prayed a prayer at the end. Or that someone who lived an otherwise upstanding life would be punished just because they weren't religious or weren't religious in the right way. To think that, that someone like Hitler right, could uh, be saved at, at the very end because he, he just made the right, right statement. Well, maybe someone like Gandhi who had done so much good for so many people uh, just didn't have the right faith, and so he uh, and so he is punished for that. At a gut level, most of us feel that, that just isn't right, right? But I think the thief's confession here it can demonstrate to us that there is more to the story as well. 
the faith that he expresses it is more than just thoughts or words, uh, some cognitive assent or saying the right formulation of words, even as he is nailed to a cross. He didn't just have a cognitive belief, but he acted upon that belief. First of all, he, he interjected against the others who were mocking. And he confessed Jesus' innocence and his kingship in that moment. That's significant because he is the only one to do that at that moment. People have confessed Jesus during his ministry whenever he has done impressive things. There's even uh, centurions and people watching who see uh, after Jesus' death these supernatural events, the earthquake, you know, uh, the sky darkened, and they say, surely this was the Son of God. But this guy is the only one to make this confession about Jesus on the cross as he's dying, as he's suffering the same fate that he is. And he says, this man is the king that they're saying he isn't. He will be coming into a kingdom. and I'm coming to him for help. He confesses that, and he confessed his own guilt. He acknowledged everything that he has done wrong. It may not seem like much, but I think it's a perfect example for us of repentance. He acknowledges what is true, what was wrong, and turns to a different course of action. I'll point out as well that he doesn't even ask for forgiveness or salvation. He just asks to be remembered. Just to be remembered. It reminds me of another parable that Jesus told about uh, these two sons and a father, right? One of the sons asks their father for their inheritance and then goes off and spends it on wild livings, uh, squanders the whole thing, ends up... uh, feeding pigs and standing beside the trough thinking, man, this pig slop looks pretty good. He's that hungry. He's wasted everything and he's at the end of his rope. And finally, he kind of comes to his his senses and he thinks, you know, at least in my dad's house, at least the servants were fed. And so he goes back home, not expecting to be received with open arms as a son, but to be received at least maybe as a servant that can be taken care of. And, of course, his dad welcomes him with open arms. He throws a party for him. And so there's, there's that amount of extravagant grace here. And remember what happened with the older brother. He didn't rejoice, did he? He said, how in the world are you going to throw a party for this guy? I never got a party. I've been with you the whole time. And the father responds, my son, you're always with me. Everything that I have is yours. We had to celebrate because your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. So why should we be faithful? Because the faithfulness is a reward in itself. It's what we're made for. It's finding a rightful place in the family, living out our identity as sons and daughters in God's kingdom, as his family, and bringing life and light into the world instead of death and darkness. The younger son, who had spent all that time squandering his wealth, he was the one who was suffering at that time, while the older son was enjoying the benefits of the family, being a part of the kingdom. It was better for him to have been with the father. The same way with us. Why why is it important that now we make the decision and not just then? Because it's good news now to be with Jesus. Jesus and for eternity. So the question then is, how 
how then can we be found faithful? We can know that if we are with Jesus in this life, we can be assured that we will be with Jesus in death and in the kingdom to come. It is a life of joy and peace, even as we endure a broken world and the effects of that until his return. If we're not yet with Jesus, this text assures us that we will be welcomed home as sons and daughters to the king, even, even if we return at, the, at our last moments. But I'll note that things like confession and repentance aren't as easy as you might think. I can tell you from personal experience that those are not habits that come easily without practice. To be able to acknowledge the truth of who God is, who Jesus is, and the truth of who we are and, and how we have fallen short. It requires that we recognize what God is doing in our midst and that we're willing to humble ourselves and to turn towards him. Those are things that are easier said than done. Because most of us spend a lot of our time practicing the opposite, rationalizing our behavior, soothing our ego. The biblical term for this would be hardening our hearts, the kind of thing that we practice. We fool ourselves into thinking that we'll make the right decision when it matters most, while training ourselves every day to do the opposite. But when we practice things like confession, that's what actually softens our heart. It trains us to see clearly. When we confess that Jesus is Lord, we give, when we give praise and thanks, when we gather like this on Sunday mornings and in small groups and, and read scripture together and, and in our own private times of, of prayer and practice adoration, praise, worship, confession of who Jesus is, it helps us to remember and to see. Even just that simple action we take every week of saying thanks for things that we see God up to in our world. It helps us to open our eyes and see what God is doing in our midst. And when we confess our sin and ask forgiveness, it can right-size our view of ourselves, the lies that stir up both an inflated pride as well as self-condemnation. I've found for myself practicing uh, confessing specific sins is actually a really important thing because we can sometimes uh, identify, we, we don't call wrong what is actually wrong, or we say just a general, oh, I'm a sinner, and, and we don't actually really think about the specifics of that. And so then we might actually have a day where we've done kind of okay, but we're just dealing with this sense of overall guilt uh, rather than really being able to understand the ways that God is leading us into right living. When we soften our heart and we strengthen it in faith, it helps us then in the moments that matter most. To that end, I, I want to end this morning with an invitation to practice confession. Now, you don't have to pray these specific words for your confession to be valid, the ones that I'll share with us, but I also know that the practice can be foreign to some that we don't actually do it much in our lives. And you might just not know where to start. So I want us to end today by praying a prayer of confession together, as well as ending it in assurance as well. So I'm going to have some words on the screen for us here in a moment. We will pray the, these, the first kind of section and then take a moment just to silently re reflect and pray and confess to God if there's specific sins to identify to him and to, and to hand over. And that might be a new thing. And so you might not get through it all during the time of silence that I, I allow for us this morning. And you can practice it more at home. But we'll just take that moment 
to, to practice today. And then we will go to the next slide and practice saying these words of assurance over what Jesus has done for us. So let's practice together. Would you say this with me? God, I confess that I have sinned through my own fault in my thoughts and in my words, in what I have done and in what I have failed to do. Search my heart. Reveal any offensive way in me. Take a moment of silence and reflection and confession. Let's say this together. In the glory of your kingdom, Jesus, remember me with mercy. In the promise of your salvation, I rejoice that I am found in you, in this life and forevermore. Amen. I invite you, Bill, to come up and lead us in another reading.